So you probably heard the saying, no good deed goes unpunished. So that's what we're going to talk about today. Because that's where we ended up in 1 Peter, as we're going through this study of 1 Peter, talking about standing firm in grace. Sherry read the text this morning. We'll read that again just to get fresh before our minds. So last week we were in the prior section. Peter was summing up his exhortation to Christians that the way they are to live in the midst of a culture that is skeptical and hostile toward the faith is to be about doing good. In particular, we're talking about not just doing good and generically, but in Christ's name. And so he said that rather than repaying evil, evil for evil or hostility for hostility or insult for insult, we are to instead bless. So that's where we were last week. And you might wonder, doesn't that make us vulnerable to abuse? If you just bless your enemies, bless people who are hostile toward you, bless people who insult you, who do evil, wrong things to you, aren't you opening yourself up to harm? And the answer is yes, at times that can happen. So we need a perspective from God's Word on how do we suffer for doing good? What is the perspective we need to have? So 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 to 17. Peter answers the question this way. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for doing what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So Peter knows something about us. He knew something about the people he was writing to and consequently about us. And the thing that we have in common with his original recipients and today is we uh, don't like to suffer. We don't like to be rejected. We don't like to endure pain. We don't like to be reviled or insulted or hurt by others very much. If you do enjoy that, then you need therapy, right? And so Peter talks about is how do we, what perspective do we need on our suffering in order to be uh, followers of Christ? And he starts out asking this question. Now, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for doing what is good? And actually, the, the, the zealous is a noun, zealot. So someone who is passionate about something. And so Peter is asking, who is there to harm you? And asking that question, is he implying that there is... Um, for those who do good, for Christians who are doing righteous things, does that mean we should expect to be delivered from harm? And obviously Peter's not meaning that. He knows that wasn't true in his day or in our day as well. Uh, we know that that's not true, and so that's not what Peter means. Peter himself suffered for doing good. Uh, Jesus did massive good, and he suffered more than any person ever on this earth. So he's not saying, in asking that question, or implying that uh, there is a way out from suffering for if by doing good. In fact, uh, you've experienced, some of you have experienced suffering for doing good. Maybe not to the extent of this medical team that was in Afghanistan. Uh, there was a team of two Afghan Muslims and eight Christian workers from Europe and North America. They were on their way back to Kabul 
after a time of providing health services to people living in remote Afghani village. Uh, the leader was a 61-year-old Tom Little and Dan Terry, who was almost 64. They were both veterans of the Afghan uh, aid scene. Both had raised their children in Afghanistan, spoke fluent Dari, that's the native language of Afghans. They traveled widely and had friends everywhere, touching the lives of countless people. People who knew Dan Terry described him as a person who understood Afghan, Afghanistan and had a fierce love for the people. But on August, in August 2010, the entire team uh, came under fire and were found dead lying next to their bullet-ridden Land Rover. The Taliban later claimed that they had killed the team because it was proselytizing. So clearly what Peter means is no one can ultimately harm you if you are a zealot for what is good. That's what he's talking about. Ultimately, no one can harm you for doing good. Ultimately meaning in the, in the, in the light of what Christ has done for us in eternity. Uh, zealots for doing good will be vindicated by, by God on the last day. Enduring harm for the sake of the gospel is definitely a test of the genuineness of our faith. So back in chapter 1, verse 7, Peter said that we are to be rejoicing in our suffering because the tested genuineness of our faith, which is more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So Peter is saying, ultimately, no one can do us harm, even if in the meantime, people can do us lots of harm. And you see as you move on to verse 14, that's what Peter's talking about, that no ultimate harm can be done if we are zealots for good, because in that very suffering, God blesses and will bless us. That's why he says in verse 14, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed, even if you should. So thankfully... Uh, We don't suffer for righteousness all the time, 24 hours a day. Uh, Sometimes we do, and Peter acknowledges that. But even if we should suffer for righteousness, we will be blessed by God. That's the promise. And so what Peter is saying is somewhat like Paul in Romans 8.31, if God is for us, who can be against us? Well, lots of things can be against us is the answer to that. It's just that ultimately they can't override God's present and future blessings. So present blessings are if you're in Christ, you have a grace-given forgiveness, you have a right standing before God that cannot be taken away by people doing bad things to you, whether verbally or bodily. Uh, you have a, uh, the love of God that you cannot be separated from, and that present. And then in the future, as, P- as uh, Paul writes in Romans 8.18, the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Our suffering for righteousness cannot overcome God's ultimate future blessings of eternal glory. God guarantees that suffering in Christ will lead to eternal glory 100% of the time. It's not if, it absolutely always will. And so we need that perspective. And part of what this message is about, preaching to myself and to us, is does that have enough traction in our hearts to give us hope in the midst of suffering? Or is it just a, yeah, yeah, I can say that on Sunday morning, and then I'm right back in the trenches, and I'm doing all I can to get back at people who bring suffering to me or trying to avoid it? And we'll talk more about how that works out in our lives. And since believers in Christ are blessed by God in their suffering, he says we are not to fear those who want to harm us. 
nor should we be troubled or shaken up. We understand fearing people who threaten to harm, harass, or humiliate or hurt us. But think about this. If suffering for righteousness, for doing good in Christ, cannot ultimately harm us, why should we fear people? And the answer to that is very obvious because sometimes they hurt us, and we don't like to be hurt. That's very clear. Who likes to be hurt? Who likes to be harmed? Who likes to be insulted? Who likes to be teased? Who likes to be mocked? So none of us enjoy that. But we recognize that if we are doing good in Christ, confessing Christ in the midst of the struggles and the, and the trials that we face under people's hands, that God guarantees that there is good, that he's working in the midst of it, always. So what is the solution for fearing those who would harm us? Run away? Actually, sometimes that is the solution. In teaching this, Peter is not saying that everything, every bad thing that people want to bring against us, that we have to step into it and just take it. Sometimes we avoid it. Sometimes that's the right thing to do. Lots of times people wanted to kill Jesus, right? And he did not always give himself over to all the bad things that people wanted to do to him. So sometimes the right thing to do is to avoid and flee. So the, the uh, application of this message is not... Every time somebody wants to do something bad to you, in order to be faithful to Christ, you have to walk into it and take it. It's those unavoidable times that maybe in our families, maybe in our school or our job situation, where we day in and day out must live for Christ, and it's not a runaway situation where we need to leave, live these things out. And how do we do that? Uh, how do we not fear people so much that we clamp down and are not able uh, to, to stand firm in Christ? And we have to ask ourselves, are we more concerned with what people can do to us, or are we more focused on Christ, who is for us? That's why Peter exhorts his readers in this text, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Honor Christ the Lord as holy in your hearts. Honor Christ the Lord as supremely worth, worthy of our loyalty and trust. Exalt him in your heart above the fear of people. And the question we need to ask and answer is, who's greater, the one insulting and mocking us or Jesus? Who is greater, the one insulting and mocking us or Jesus? And I really need to talk myself into having that perspective. Who is bigger in my sight, people or God? Christ is Lord over all. Why do we fear people more than Christ? Do we not trust him who died for us and conquered sin and death for us? I need to argue with myself that way, and, and I need daily to refresh myself in that perspective. Otherwise, the fear of man will always collapse in on me. Always. And so, what Peter says is, in order to do that, the, in order to not fear man more than God, honor Christ as Lord in our heart, keeping him real, giving him first place in our hearts, honoring Christ the Lord as holy in our hearts, keeps us, what he exhorts us to here, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, always being ready to make a defense. So there's a couple things to see in that, in that passage. First, we're always to be prepared to make a defense of the reason for the hope that is in us. Every Christian should be able to defend his or her hope in Christ. Every Christian. It's not for the experts. It's not for people who, who have all the answers to every question. But if you have hope in Christ... Hopefully there's a few of those who would say, yep, I've got hope in Christ this morning. Then you should be able to give a defense for why you have that hope. 
how you give the defense, the reason for the hope, is going to depend much upon who the person who's asking you, what they need to hear. The more you know about what their own hopes and fears are, the better you can personalize the reasons you give. So, uh, in other words, do you know the basic Bible story? Creation, fall, redemption, and consummation, or the finishing of God's redemptive work. And so, do you know what people, uh, the people that are asking you for a reason for the hope within you, what they think the world should be like? Uh, do they, what do they think is their, they need to be happy? How do they describe their struggles? What is the biggest problem from their perspective that they have? Or what do they think would make life better? Or what gives them relief or escape from the, the struggles that they face? Or what are, the, what are their functional saviors? What do, how do they define, this is what saves me from my problems? Or what are their hopes and dreams? Or have they given up on their hopes and dreams? Just recognizing where people are coming from helps us to answer specifically to what they need to hear. If you know the gospel according to Homer Simpson, Simpson that's a good starting place. The gospel according to Homer Simpson goes like this. All these people are a mess except this one guy. If you know that much, this one guy, Jesus, is not a mess. He is the one who saves us from our mess. That's the reason for your hope. Then you can talk to people about the reason for the hope that is within you. And that brings up the second point. Peter says that we should always be ready to give a reason for the hope that is in us. He says hope rather than faith. Now, it would have been right for him to use the word faith because we should be able to get a reason for the faith within us. But hope is a, is a little bit different uh, focus. Peter, in his whole letter, is focused on the future, the future hope that we have, the certainty, uh, the certain hope, the confident certainty that Christ will overcome evil that is against us with his eternal good because of his atoning death, his resurrection, his ascension, and his return. That is where our confident hope and expectation is. That's the reason that it's not just a hope so, kind of want to hope it comes out to be true. We know it's going to be true because Christ really did these things. He historically in time did them. He is still alive now. We expect him to return. So hope is the joy-producing conviction that suffering or anything else in this world is not the end of the story. It's not, it's not our main heart focus. Um, but Christ's rescuing goodness and glory will be the unending story. So what Peter assumes is that their Christ-centered hope is so evident, so distinctive, that unbelievers are going to ask them about it. So that hope that was in them because they honor Christ as holy, as Lord in their hearts, would show itself outwardly by the way they continue to do good for and bless others, even when wrong. So that's one way that hope is going to show up. Or by continuing to confess Christ, even when ridiculed, mocked, or threatened. So we need to ask ourselves, can people see your hope and my hope? I mean, is my hope visible? Is my hope different than their hope? The hope of the person on the street who doesn't believe in Christ? Does it manifest itself? Does our hope in Christ show up in compelling and distinctive ways? Well, is anybody asking a reason for the hope? That's a good starting place. Has anybody in the last decade asked a reason for the hope within me? How might people see our hope in Jesus? Well, just as in Peter's 
day and the context he was writing into, they can see it. When we bless and do good for those who wrong us or hurt or insult us. That sticks out. That shows up. Or they may see it in how we respond to suffering due to illness or injury. So from our former home church up in Port Angeles, Washington, there's a 30-year-old young woman who's in hospice care right now due to brain cancer. And uh, she's married, and she has a few-months-old baby, baby boy. She wrote this on her April 23rd blog. So remember, she's in hospice care, not expected to live. She says, I'm joyful. I just am. Really, I think it comes down to these two things. Remaining thankful, taking every moment to remind myself of all that God is doing, what he has done, what he might continue to do through this. She says, I have so much to be thankful for, and things could always be much worse. Hard to imagine for those of us who are not in that state to be able to say that. She says, I have hope. The truth is, I am grieving. So having hope in Christ doesn't mean we don't grieve. It doesn't mean we don't struggle. Because she says, mostly grieving the pain of those who will be affected by my death, especially my husband. My sweet Isaiah, that's her few months old baby boy. My parents and beyond. This is the hardest part for me. It can feel crushing at times. Surrendering my own life is one thing, but surrendering two more precious lives is entirely different. But, she says, I'm not without hope. My hope is in Jesus and the eternity we are promised when we accept him. I know I will see these lives again. I know I will meet my maker face to face. I know life on earth is just a breath in light of eternity, and death has no power over this soul. So her name's Christina. Christina obviously has a hope that sticks out, that's very obvious, and that I would want to ask her a reason for the hope within her. People may see our hope in how we cope with tragedies or the death of loved ones, People may see our hope in Christ by the way we faithfully persevere in a difficult marriage or the way that we don't retaliate, become embittered when our spouse wrongs us and breaks up the marriage. People may see our hope in the way we use our money, whether we are relatively wealthy or relatively poor. They may not see our bank information, but they may observe over time if we are selfish consumers poor money managers, or whether or not we are generous. They may see our hope in Christ by the way we do or don't show hospitality or compassion. And whether it's a neighbor, co-worker, classmate, sports teammate, family member, as they are around us, does our day in and day out speech and attitudes reflect hope in Christ? If you hang around us long enough, does it stick stick out by my speech and my attitudes? Or how about my day-in and day-out obedience to Jesus in spite of pressures to go with the flow and conform to ungodliness around us? In spite of the pressures to, to, go, uh, to, to collapse in to ungodly behavior? In all these ways, we can display our hope in Christ. Peter goes on and says, Yet do it with gentleness and respect. It's actually still in verse 15. I'm talking about under verse 16. When we encounter a hostile world and are challenged about our faith, we could be tempted to retaliate or respond harshly or mockingly or sarcastically. 
But Peter says, no, do it with gentleness and humility or respect. It doesn't mean you don't have conviction. It doesn't mean uh, that you don't believe what you're saying. But when we communicate with a sneer or hatefully or harshly or or we too overwhelmingly dump a truckload of truth on them, we're not communicating with gentleness and respect. So we want to be sure that we do that. Don't make them sorry they ever asked a reason for the hope within us. Like, oh man, I'll never do that again. So tell them what they need to hear. Tell them with grace and truth. And with respect or fear, fear the Lord first in reverence for God, just like Paul, Peter had said earlier, uh, setting Christ apart as Lord holy in our hearts, um, with fear of the Lord, keeping God central in our heart, focus brings an authentic blend of humility and weightiness and compassion to our talk and our attitude. We don't want to be flippant or wishy-washy. Does people still say wishy-washy? Anyway, I just said it. Okay, that still communicates. Uh, speak the gospel truth in love for God and for people. And he says, do it having a good conscience. So why did you say that, having a good conscience? What does Peter mean when he says that? As we defend our hope in Christ, have a good conscience. Well, for one thing, he means that we speak with awareness in our own hearts that left to ourselves, we would remain unforgiven sinners only, deserving God's judgment. That's what we are apart from Christ. And yet we have received forgiveness and new life by grace through faith in Christ. So we really believe that only through him we have forgiveness. We're not talking about, hey, I got all my religious ducks in a row. I've attained a higher plane of spirituality. Let me tell you how I did that. We're talking from that perspective. And having a good conscience does mean that even though you are not perfect, you have enough evidence in your life of turning from sin toward what God saved you for. So, for example, in Ephesians 2, where many are familiar with this passage, by grace you have been saved through faith. That's great news. And this is not your own doing. You didn't do it. You had nothing to do with it. It is the gift of God. Not as a result of works that no one may boast. All right? No boasting allowed because it's God's grace work. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. We weren't saved as a result of works, but for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so, speaking and defending the reason for the hope within us in good conscience means that I have some evidence that God has, is producing good works in my life. That's why Peter says we are to defend our hope having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, he goes on and says, those who revile your good behavior, hopefully there's something there to revile, right? Your good conduct in Christ may be put to shame. So how does Peter say that Christians will be slandered? Uh, people will revile. They will malign with threats. In other words, their good conduct. Why in the world would they do that? Why would they attack them for their good behavior? Well, as we all know, sometimes people do that because it convicts them of their badness. So and the only way for them to retaliate against that is to shoot the messenger or to criticize the person who's communicating to them by their lives. Uh, they need to discredit those whose good behavior makes them look or feel what they are bad. And no doubt, that would be part of their motivation for reviling their good conduct. But what especially drives them to slander these Christians is that their good behavior is, as Peter says, your good behavior in Christ. So they do what they do in the name of Jesus Christ, as representatives of Christ. 
Uh, their good behavior is distinctively Christian, not just generic good deeds. Peter himself was arrested and put in jail, not for healing people, because he did, but for healing people in Christ's name. Uh, last summer, uh, a native of Iran who became an American citizen, Pastor Saeed Abedini, went back to Iran to uh, help some orphanages get going in Iran. And he was arrested for allegedly assisting Christian house churches. He has been in Iran's worst prison. It's one of the worst prisons in the world since September uh, 25th of last year, 2012. He's not in prison for helping orphanages, but because of doing his good works in Christ. So what does Peter have in mind when he says we are to keep a good conscience so that those who revile our good behavior in Christ may be put to shame? Well, he may mean that they're exposed to themselves and to others in this life of having unjustly criticized, unjustly judged the Christ followers. At some point, maybe they're actually embarrassed. They, they recognize, okay, I've been slandering this person and they've only been up to good and they may feel bad about that. And that would connect with what Peter said back in uh, chapter 2, verse 12, where he said, Keep your conduct among unbelievers honorable so that when they speak against you, as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Maybe some actually see their good deeds, recognize I've been wrong in criticizing them for that, and they repent. That would be a good thing to happen. But Peter is also very focused on the future, and he may be saying that these, some of these critics are going to be put to shame on the last day before the judgment seat of Christ. Uh, having had that evidence before them that this person was doing good in Christ's name, and that was a good thing, and so they, they never did repent, and they die accusing Christians' good conduct as being bad. So Peter's what he's saying here is that we should continue to live righteously, continue to live righteously. Hopefully we've at least started on that journey. Even when slandered so that unbelievers who malign our good conduct in Christ will be put to shame, whether to their repentance or, sadly, uh, to their judgment in the last day. Either way, we're to persevere. We're not to let the fear of what they're going to do to us or what they do do to us uh, cause us to um, suffer, the fear of suffering scorn, criticism, or other harm that people may do cause us to compromise our confession of Christ or our good conduct in Christ. And then Peter says in verse 17, for, he's just continuing his flow of thought here, it's better to suffer for doing good that if it should be God's will than for doing evil. That sounds, why would Peter need to say that? That sounds so straightforward, of course. Seems like an obvious point. Why does Peter need to say it? Well, Peter knows people like us who sometimes when we sin and suffer as Christians, we might pull out the I'm being persecuted card when really we're getting in trouble for, for doing wrong things. And probably we've all done that at some point. Hey, you're persecuting me. You're persecuting me. Well, you've messed up. You, you, you're, this is not for your faith. This is for your folly. So Roderick Gilbert uh, was here a few weeks ago, and we had uh, lunch with him. And during that time, he was sharing with us some of the situations where people are being persecuted are legitimate, where they really are being persecuted for their faith and for their confession of Christ. And some are they're getting in trouble because they're doing stupid things. So he gave an example of a pastor who had arranged for a marriage So in, in India. So Pastor Roderick Gil Gilbert was from India, if you weren't here. And um, 
he, in India, they do arrange marriages. So sometimes pastors do that. Hey, would you like that service? I'll arrange a marriage for you. So he arranged for two young people to get married, and toward the very end, there was a switch in fiancés, and uh, for this young 20-something girl, he turned out he was marrying her to a 60-something-year-old man. Well, the family got ticked off, and they retaliated, and they they did some nasty things to him. But he deserved it. Just so you know, we have a strict non-fiancé switching policy here at Harvest, so never, never do that. Here. Peter goes on and says, if that should be God's will. You say, wait a minute, suffering for righteousness, if that should be God's will, is it ever God's will that we suffer for righteousness? God is sovereign over all of our suffering. He is in control. Nothing slips out from under his while he's not noticing. It's not the one that got away from him when we suffer for doing good. In fact, it's unbiblical to say that if we live righteously, God will keep us from suffering. Uh, If you need some instruction on that, read the book of Job or read the Gospels about the greatest person who ever lived who never deserved any suffering whatsoever, who suffered unlike any person ever did or will, Jesus Christ. So it's not true to say that by doing good, we avoid suffering. If it's God's will, we trust him for it now, and we will glorify and praise God forever for it in eternity, for it being how he works his grace and glory in the midst of our suffering. And the encouragement is for us to persevere in that. Said Abedini, the American-Iranian pastor who is now in prison, we just talked about a little bit ago, wrote that he was told by Iranian prison officials, deny your faith in Jesus Christ and return to Islam or else you will not be released from prison. Now, he's been there since September 25th, remember? We will make sure that you are kept here even after your eight-year sentence is finished. In his response, he wrote, according to Romans 8, 35 and 39, persecution and death cannot separate me from the Christ's love. This is, this is where the rubber meets the road. Is this a real comfort and encouragement to him, or does it only work when we're in church talking about it together? Here he is in prison for months he says, the reality of Christian living is that difficulties or problems do arise in our, in our lives. He says, persecution and difficulties are not new occurrences, but are seen often in the Christian life. It is through the suffering and tribulations that we are to enter the kingdom of God. So with that, we hold fast to what Peter's encouraging us to do, is to suffer for doing good, trusting God. Don't fear when suffering for doing good, but honor Christ as Lord in our hearts, for God will make it worthwhile. We just need that eternal perspective. God will have made it, he will make it worthwhile, even as he did in Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we don't like suffering. We don't like it when no good deed does, goes unpunished. We do recognize that the only reason that we're even gifted with forgiveness of sins and eternal life is that someone died the death we should have died for living the life we should have lived and rose again conquering our worst enemy's sin and death and freely gave that to us who brought about his suffering if we were to be saved. So thank you, Father, for the privilege of suffering for doing good 
help us to be doing good in Christ, driven by hope, certain expectation that it is worth following him regardless of the pain. Whatever that means, Father, for our lives in relatively comfortable Christian America, still it's hard to represent Christ because of our, the fear factor, the embarrassment factor, and not knowing if we're up for the task factor. But would you give us that humble but bold confidence in Jesus, that strong, joyful hope in him, to be willing to do what it takes to honor him, keep him centrally honored as Lord in our hearts for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. We can stand with this last song.